there was a change made to the text of the Gospel of John, a pretty big one in the second century. It would have had to be in the second century when this happened for the purpose of diminishing Mary Magdalene's role in the Gospel of John. Ain't no such thing as a free ride. Ain't no such thing as a piece of free advice. Not that I've seen. Hey there, everybody. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. I appreciate you downloading. Now, before we get going, I do need your help. This show is entirely funded by patrons and sometimes by ads. And so I am asking you, if you get anything from this show, consider supporting it. There are many ways to do so. Here in a few weeks, I am releasing a series on some of the unspoken sermons of George MacDonald. Mostly because I liked to do them, but I'm going to put them on Patreon. I don't think they're going to be anywhere else, at least not for the time being. You get access to other things, early access to the shows, the videos. Some people get books, discount on merchandise in the store. You get all kinds of things. And so help if you could or if you were able and become a producer of the show over at Patreon. You'll find links for that in the show notes. If you are unable to, the other cool thing that you can do is literally in the app that you're listening to this on, just rate and review the show and leave a little note there. It does help in the algorithm world that we live in, but also I read those and I get a kick out of those and I enjoy it. Even if you hate the show, tell me you do. (laughs) Um, Hopefully you don't, or I would be curious why you downloaded today, but you know what I mean. I am rambling and I shouldn't be. So... I am very excited. So I want to open the door a bit into my life. So I have two beautiful daughters and everybody says that their daughters are beautiful and I get that, but I think they are. Either way, there are many, many denominations of at least the Protestant church that tell me and tell my daughters who they are and what they can be. And often that's less than, and that's wrong. Now, how does that relate at all to Elizabeth Schrader? Elizabeth has done some work on Martha and Mary in the Gospel of John, and we briefly touch on this. And I'm going to link right here in the transcript, but also in the show notes to some of the work that she's done on this and some other writings about it. And it is fascinating. And it is honestly, for the uh, 15 year ago me, would have been earth shattering with the way that I viewed the Bible. Luckily, that's not the way that I view the scriptures today. I really enjoyed this conversation. And so here we go. A conversation about Martha and Mary, Gospel of John, and a few other things mixed in, because why not? With Elizabeth Schrader. Elizabeth, welcome to the show late at night on a it's Monday. It's Monday. Time blends together. I'm glad that you're here. And I am thankful that Keith introduced us. So Keith, I have no idea if you mm-hmm. listen to these. I have to assume that he is, but thank you, my friend. But welcome. How are you doing tonight? I am well. I'm just in between like a Zoom jam with some friends playing music. And then I'm going to do some Sanskrit. So that's that's what doctoral life is over <laughs> here. <laughs> what do you jam with on Zoom? How does that even work with latency? Good question. Yeah, some friends and I, um, I got a fellowship here at Duke, and it turned out that a lot of the people in the in the cohort were musicians. And so we started just like meeting for jams. And we would like go to each other's houses and play songs in the round and harmonize with each other and like learn songs together. And then COVID hit and we wanted to keep on doing our jams. So now we just like play songs in the round. I played a killer song tonight. It was fun. Which one? Mm, everything will be all right. I don't know that one. I only know Mr. Brightside. It's the last one. I only know. It's the last one on that record. But it's gotcha. Well, I don't I don't know that record. Um, I know, I only know that song. And then I enjoyed watching how it was broken. Have you watched Song Exploder on Netflix? Is this a thing that you're aware of? My friend Kathleen works on that show. Oh. So I know about it. Um, but I have not yet watched it. It is by far one of my favorite podcasts. By far. Like if there is a podcast that I've listened to since I knew the podcasts were a thing, it's that one. Well, I've heard that it's very good and I should definitely listen to it. In fact, just to support my friend, I should do it. So yes, I know about it and, and I, I will, I will, I will listen to it. Hey, you don't have I've to, heard it's good. You don't have to get to me. You don't have to commit to me. It is very good. Um, but um, not why I brought you on. So 
who and why is Elizabeth Schrader? I like to try to answer, ask that question differently yeah. each time, but why not? Yeah, who and why? And why? That's a really deep question. Mm, I would say, and it's changed over the years. There have been, I feel as though I'm in like life 2.0 right now because <laughs> I was a musician for a very long time. Mm -hmm as I was just alluding to. Right now, I am a doctoral candidate in early Christianity at Duke University in North Carolina. And I study manuscripts of the New Testament and the text in those manuscripts and variations in the manuscript because not all the manuscripts say the same thing. Mm. And I'm really fascinated with textual variations in the New Testament, I suppose particularly around the women. <laughs> because there's a lot of really interesting textual variations that are not widely discussed. And so I think it's a very fascinating topic and I'm happy to talk about that with people. I think I do feel something of a vocation to gain expertise and to bring these issues to people's attention. Yeah. I want to break apart some of those. And um, I wanted to start with what do you want to do when you're done with your PhD stuff? So we'll talk a bit about what you're studying in your PhD work, but I'm really curious, what are you going to do when you're done? Like, are you going to teach? Are you going to write? Are you going to write and you're going to teach? Are you going to change yeah, careers probably again? All like, that. What do you want to do? Probably all that. Well, I, hope, I mean, I hope not. <laughs> I, I don't feel as though this career change was my choice. I feel like it just sort of happened to me. Mm. I mean, I was getting a little bit burnt out on the music business, but at the same time, oftentimes when you burn out, that doesn't, I mean, I was a piano teacher also. I could have just been mm. a piano teacher. That would have been a nice job. It's a great job. But this other thing happened where I found out that my brain is really good at textual criticism, which is a really random kind of obscure arcane field within New Testament scholarship where you compare variations in manuscripts and uh, you try to figure out what the author wrote or what the earliest circulating text was. Yeah. And that's something that I certainly didn't grow up saying that's what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> but I sort of stumbled upon it and found out that my brain works that way, mm -hmm. which was surprising because I was a full-grown adult when I found that out. And I also learned that not very many women do that. And so it seems as though it would be a valuable contribution for me to do this type of thing that my brain seems to be good at, especially um, in a field where women are underrepresented. Yeah. You said the word early Christianity or earlier. That's a bad sentence. I don't know how to say it elsewhere. Like, what is, when is early Christianity? Like, is that the first 50 years, the first thousand years? Like, what is that? Um, the first 500 years. Okay. Probably. Yeah. And um, we, I mean, I kind of, my expertise drops off after the Council of Ephesus. Okay. Council of Ephesus in the mid fifth century. I, I know a lot of stuff up till then. Basically, you know, pre Constantinian Christianity, I'm very interested in mm. because Constantine really affected how things turned out. Yes. But there was a lot of different sorts of Christianities before then. Hmm. And so I'm interested in exploring what those were and if there were certain aspects that may have been suppressed. Um, and if so, we should find them and bring them to light. Yeah, absolutely. And then you said textual variations. I don't know what that means. Like that's, mm. those, those aren't sentences that I, well, th I know what those words mean separately, but I don't know what they mean together. Okay, um, so we don't have any of the autographs of the books of the New Testament. That is the copy that the author handed to somebody else to copy. We just have copies of copies of copies. And so we have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, but of course there was no printing press for the first 1500 years of the religion. And so people are just copying each other and no two copies are alike. Right now we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Hmm. But um, some of these are obviously more valuable than others. And there's like a whole study within itself of the text and how it developed over time. And it's the job of text critics to try to attain the earliest text that we can. We might not be able to find exactly what the author wrote, unfortunately, because the autograph is lost. So usually there's at least 100 years in between our oldest copy and the time of authorship. Hmm. So there's kind of a little black box in the text transmission that we aren't totally sure what happened in that black box. So the best that we can hope for is to go back to the earliest textual record that we have, but there still might be a gap in between what the author wrote and what we have access to. Hmm. I watched a brief video of you talking a bit about some of that and things kept popping up in my brain that, so I don't, what do I want to say? 
So you had asked me, we, we spoke yesterday for those listening, um, which I enjoyed. I might start doing more of those. I, I, I did enjoy that. Um, <laughs> you had asked me whether or not inerrancy is a thing that, that matters. That's not really the way that you said it. But for me, it's not. But I know many people that listen maybe still hold to that because there's a lot of people that listen to this show. And so I found myself wondering, why does textual variations and criticism matter for a Bible today? Because why should that matter? Like if something... If something so if something changed that you had uncovered, would they even reprint the Bibles or no? Like what what good does it ultimately do for a Christian just sitting in church today? Um, well, yeah, they they would in fact reprint the Bibles and they have. For instance, well, there's two things to keep in mind. There's different Bible printings and translations that make different decisions. So in the 19th century, a couple of manuscripts came to light that had never been studied before, that turned out to be very important, codices of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, which are fourth century copies of the Bible. And they were like the oldest complete copies of the Bible that anybody had ever seen. And both of them did not have the last 16 verses of Mark's gospel, Mm -hmm. nor, uh, is it 16 verses? The last section of Mark's gospel. Yeah, it yeah. ends at 16, 8, 16, 8 to 20. So I guess the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel. Um, and they also did not have the story of the woman caught in adultery. And these Bibles were so old that people have theorized that they were some of the 50 Bibles that Constantine commissioned in the 4th century. Hmm. He commissioned 50 Bibles to be made with, you know, imperial funds. Because these are very deluxe editions on parchment, which means animal skin. You know, hundreds of animals died. Expensive. Several professional scribes worked on these Bibles. They're very high quality. And so it's possible, people have theorized, we don't, we can't know for sure, that Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus were two of those 50 Bibles. And if so, then that means in the fourth century, there was no story of the woman caught in adultery. There was no ending to Mark's gospel as we know it. So this caused a big shock in the 19th century when that happened. And a lot of people... Um, it challenged their faith. But if you look at a new revised standard translation today, you'll see that both of those sections appear in brackets. Yeah. And I think there was actually the first revised standard version. They put the story of the woman caught in adultery in the footnotes and everybody got angry. So they put it back, but it's in brackets. <clears throat> so yes, you can cause the text of the Bible to change. It, huh. it can change. So many questions I want to ask on that, but that's not why I brought you on. Yeah. So I want to get to the work that you're doing. So you're writing um, or doing work around Martha or Mary Maybe both. Maybe I misunderstood. It's probably possible. Um, I try to approach these from as much ignorance as possible because I find if I can learn something, other people probably can too. So what's some of the work that you're doing now? How did that kind of happen? What has that shifted? And then ultimately, where is that leading the work to? And I'm aware that those are massive questions and we may not even have time to get to all of them. Well, I'll, I'll just start with the last thing you said where it's leading to. It's really landing on the role of women in the church. Mm. That's where this is landing because what I've basically theorized, I have not proven, but I have made a reasonable scholarly case that there was a change made to the text of the Gospel of John, a pretty big one in the second century. It would have had to be in the second century when this happened for the purpose of diminishing Mary Magdalene's role in the Gospel of John. And fortunately, I think your audience is pretty biblically literate. I right? hope so. I hope so. I think they are. So I, I have I been to told about, that there's a high, what's the word? My wife used it once. There's like a high entry point. Like you can't just, like we just go into the, to the level three rapids. We're not, there's no, you should. Level you sh- three rapids. You should just, you should just <laughs> know, how, you already should know how the lifeboats work and life jackets work and paddles work. Yeah. Uh, which is probably bad. I don't know. Maybe it's not. It doesn't matter. Well, that's great. That means I don't have to spend quite as much time talking about some of these (laughs) things. The way I got into it is I wrote a song about Mary Magdalene, and I had read The Complete Idiot's Guide to Mary Magdalene after writing a song about her. And I said to myself, I want to look at the oldest manuscript of the Gospel of John and see if there was anything changed around Mary Magdalene in it, just out of curiosity. And I was a total layperson. I grew up going to church in the Episcopal Church. I had written a song about Mary Magdalene, and I was a professional musician and a piano teacher. I did not know Greek. I did not care about the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) (laughs) I did not have any particular, like, attachment one way or another. I just wanted to look at the oldest copy. And in the oldest copy of the Gospel of John, there was nothing strange in the scene at the cross where Mary Magdalene is, or in John 20, where Jesus encounters 
uh, Mary Magdalene, the risen Jesus um, in the garden on Easter morning. But I had read in my Complete Idiot's Guide to Mary Magdalene that there has always been a question of whether Lazarus's sister Mary, often thought of as Mary of Bethany, should be identified as Mary Magdalene, that that's been a question throughout the history of the church. So the last place that I looked in Papyrus 66 was at John 11. And again, I didn't read Greek, but I was using an interlinear study Bible. Sounds like some of your people know what that is. Mm -hmm. And when I went to John chapter 11, I could see very clearly, that the name Mary had been crossed out two times. And this is the oldest copy that exists of the Gospel of John. Papyrus 66 was discovered in 1952, and it was first published in 1958. So we haven't had it for that long, but scholars had been studying it. I found this in 2012. So scholars have been studying it for over 50 years at this point. And when I saw this, I was like, wait a second. So the first time the name Maria was changed to say Martha. Hmm. The second time the name Maria was changed to say Pi Adelphi, the sisters. And I didn't really know Greek, but I could see enough that it looked like they were adding Martha to the story. And I knew enough to know that Martha shows up in a different story, in a different gospel, in the gospel of Luke. In Luke 10, there's a story of Mary and Martha. Jesus goes to their house, Martha's cooking, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha says, tell my sister to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. Notice that they don't have a brother. There's no brother in that story. Nobody is raised from the dead (laughs) in the Gospel of Luke. Also, that story happens a long way from Jerusalem. Jesus seems to be in Galilee or Samaria in that story at that Mm. point. And scholars I've since learned have noticed that, um, that it's a bit weird that Mary and Martha don't have a brother and they're really, they don't seem to be in Bethany and Luke's gospel. So when I saw this thing in Papyrus 66 with the name Mary getting changed to Martha and Mary getting changed to the sisters, I was like, it looks like they're adding Martha. It looks like this scribe is adding Martha to the story, which is not a thought that would ever have occurred to me because Mary and Martha go together. They're two peas in a pod. Yeah. You don't separate Mary and Martha. <laughs> But just looking at it, that's what it looked like the scribe was doing. It looked like the scribe was adding Martha to the story. And when I discovered this, it was so shocking. And so I I went back to the library, to the Brooklyn Public Library, and I started ordering articles on interlibrary loan to see anything that any scholar had said in the last 50 years about these changes. Basically, everybody said, yeah, the name Maria was changed to Martha. Probably a mistake. Oh, the name Maria right after that is changed to the sisters and all the verbs are changed from singular to plural. It's a mistake. That's very weird. (laughs) And that's where the scholarship had ended. Mm. They just said, that's, that's so strange. This is the weirdest change in the whole papyrus. And that was the end of the scholarship on it. And I was like, what? You know, this might be Mary Magdalene. People have always wondered if this person was Mary Magdalene. And this is the oldest copy that exists of the gospel of John. There's one little fragment, Papyrus 52, but it's only a couple verses. Papyrus 66 has fragments of all 21 chapters. It's like a codex that's still intact. And it's usually dated to about 200 AD, again, over 100 years after the gospel was written. So that means that the gospel of Luke has been circulating as well. And so it looks to me as though somebody has, the scribe has what I've since kind of concluded or what I ended up theorizing is that the scribe had access to two copies of John. That's sort of what the scholarly consensus is on Papyrus 66. Like you're a scribe and your job is to copy this gospel. And so you have two copies that you're copying from, one that you're copying and one that you're correcting against. So this scribe was trying to make a good copy. And it seems to me as though one of the scribe's copies had Martha and the other one did not. And the scribe is sort of trying to reconcile them, changing things here and there, and trying to make a good copy. And then after five verses, Martha becomes stable in the text of Papyrus 66. After John 11, verse 5, Martha is there in Papyrus 66. But for the first five verses, Martha's kind of blinking in and out. The scribe doesn't seem certain of whether she belongs there. And so I realized, like, this might be Mary Magdalene, and maybe Martha doesn't belong there, and nobody's done anything about it. So I enrolled in a master's program. Basically, because I was like, I need to tell everybody. And so what a joy that I'm actually doing. Look, I'm on your show and I'm accomplishing that. I'm a singer-songwriter in Brooklyn and I found something (laughs) weird and I wanted to tell people. And look, now I'm doing it. That's great. (laughs) 
<laughs> why does it matter that Martha's inserted into these texts? Like, what purpose does that serve to not invent a character? I wasn't there, so maybe she's real, maybe she's not. What does it matter? Like, why? Well, she's real in Luke. She's definitely real in Luke. But why insert her into the other texts? Like, what purpose does that possibly serve? I think that what it comes down to is the confession in the Gospel of John. The central Christological confession in John's Gospel belongs to Martha. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if they die, shall live. And he says, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. That's generally accepted to be the central confession of the Gospel of John. And right now, it's on the lips of a minor character. Martha is a female, which is interesting. And it's a confession that has since antiquity been compared to Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16, mm. where uh, Jesus says, "Who is it Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Yeah. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's how Peter becomes the rock that the church is built on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm, so I'm saying that in John's gospel, a woman gets that, which is remarkable in itself. But right now it's a minor character. It's a character who... You know, she has that cooking moment and she has this confession, but she doesn't really have that much else. What's really interesting is that Tertullian, who is one of the oldest church fathers that we have, he was mm -hmm. writing it in like 210 AD. He had a treatise called Against Praxius. Every single manuscript of Against Praxius says that Mary gave the confession. Hmm. Not only that, but going back as far as we have commenters, people think that Mary of Bethany is Mary Magdalene. There's always been division about this. People today would say, oh, she's from Magdala. Is that a city? Not Bethany. Not a title? <clears throat> There's a lot of towns called Migdal this, Migdal that okay. in antiquity. It just means tower. Okay. So there's been a little bit of a debate in scholarship over whether it's a title like Mary the Tower or whether it's saying she's from the town called Tower. Migdal Nunaya is where they think she's from in Galilee. But there's a lot of Migdals, and there's like Migdal Gad. There's like eight of them or something that we know. Um, they were all over Palestine. And in fact, Eusebius of Caesarea, who was a church father writing in the fourth century, he thinks that Magdala is in Judea, which is a totally different place Altogether. than um, where people think Magdala is today. So it, there's there's actually no consensus. The word Mag Magdal just means tower. Yeah, okay. The point is, is that there has been debate over whether Mary of Bethany is Mary Magdalene or not. And I'm saying that when you put Martha into the story, it confuses things. Because if it was just Lazarus and Mary, you would be more likely as a reader of John's gospel, if you're reading from beginning to end in John's gospel, you would be more likely to notice how very similar the Lazarus story is to the story of Jesus's resurrection from the dead. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's a woman named Mary who's crying in both stories, and she sees somebody that she loves dearly raised from the dead in both stories. But there's other more subtle things, such as they have the words like, you know, tomb, stone, um, also handkerchief, sudarion, which is a really unique Latin loan word. It's a very rare, rare word that's found in both stories. So hmm. Lazarus has the sudarion, and then there's the sudarion in the tomb that Mary sees. But there's also Jesus says, where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? And then the same question is asked, Mary asks Jesus when she thinks he's the gardener, where have you laid him? Hmm. So there's a deliberate parallelism created by the fourth evangelist between the Lazarus story and the John 20 story that is not an accident. Not only that, but Mary goes on to anoint Jesus and she gets criticized and he says, let her save it for the day of my burial. There's only one woman named Mary who goes to Jesus's tomb in John's gospel. It's Mary Magdalene. Yeah. So I'm suggesting that as the evangelist wrote the gospel of John, it's not stated explicitly that it's Mary Magdalene that gives the confession, but it's a woman named Mary who does all the same things as Mary Magdalene. And it's there's these insinuations that this Mary who anoints Jesus, who's going to go to his burial, that she's probably Mary Magdalene. But if you put Martha in the story, that is derailed. Hmm. Instead of making a connection with John 20, you're going to think of Luke 10. Mm. You're distracted into the gospel of Luke. You're not thinking about how similar Lazarus's sister Mary is to Mary Magdalene anymore. Yeah. Now you're thinking, oh, Mary and Martha, I love those ladies. They're so, I love them. They're my favorite <laughs> Bible characters. And so you're not even thinking about that story with Jesus and Mary Magdalene anymore. And I'm saying 
That's what that accomplishes. Mm. It accomplishes three things. It distracts you into the Gospel of Luke, so you don't see the parallelism. Second of all, it changes the identity of Mary. No more is she probably Mary Magdalene. Now she's the woman who sat quietly at Jesus' feet in Luke's Gospel. In Luke's Gospel, that's not Mary Magdalene. Mm. And third of all, Martha has that all-important confession. So I'm saying, imagine a, a Gospel of John where Mary Magdalene gives the confession, anoints Jesus, goes to the cross. Only person at the empty tomb, Jesus appears to her first, and she gets an apostolic commission, yeah. and she's a very important character. I don't know how to ask this well. So would this be, I have a couple questions. So is there some scribe sitting there saying, mm, I can't, I, I don't want to submit to a female being this high up in the church because I don't want someone to contest with Peter? Or is there someone, like, are there four scribes that just went together and said, we're going to try to change as many copies as we have, that way no one else knows the difference? Like, I can't see if someone changed the text that way and it's circulating and people are like, I saw a copy a few weeks ago. It didn't say this. That's not what this says. What the heck are you doing? Are those even really valid questions or are they just I wish we could go back in time and see what happened. Don't you want to know? Um, I do. I think, yeah, I think the idea of a woman being in a similar leadership role to Peter would have been challenging. I mean, it's still challenging today, right? So think about how challenging it would have been in 200 AD, if somebody got that. But as far as what you're talking about with the scribes, it's more likely to have been an editor than a scribe because scribes just are copying. There's somebody called like a Diothortis who is in charge of like maybe a scriptorium who's sort of deciding how the copies turn out and checking things. It might have been somebody like that, perhaps in an influential intellectual center, perhaps Alexandria. Papyrus 66 comes from Alexandria in Egypt. That's possible. I'd say that it's more likely that somebody at an early stage may have deliberately made a change like that. But the practice of scribes is to include as much as possible. And that's actually why this is such a clever correction, because you don't want to miss anything. If this is the word of God and potentially the word of God, you don't want to leave anything out. And that's one of the things we do know about scribal practices in antiquity. Better safe than sorry. And so safe is to just include everything. Yeah. So if you have one one copy where it's just Mary and one where it's Mary and Martha, you're going to take the safe bet and do the one that has both sisters because you don't want to miss anything. So I think it's a very it's a very clever move on the editor's part. I should also point out that when I entered my master's program, I thought I was going to do a study of Papyrus 66. Mm. But what ended up happening was I looked at transcriptions of over 100 manuscripts of John's Gospel. And I was able to go through every single verse where Martha shows up. And it turns out that Martha drops in and out of the text transmission throughout the text transmission. One in five manuscripts of the Gospel of John has something problematic around Martha. And in fact, Hmm. you can reconstruct almost the entirety of John 11 without Martha. There's no manuscript that we have I mean, there's, maybe there's one in a jar in Egypt somewhere in, in the sands, but um, there's no manuscript that we have access to where Martha is completely gone. But by cobbling together different verses from different manuscripts, you can get almost the entire story, John 11, 1 to John 12, 7, without Martha. Hmm. You just have to cobble it together. So how does that rest in the academic world? Like when, when someone like you comes in and says, this has been here all along. What have you people been doing? Like, how does that... Oh, I don't say it like I, that. That's what I would say, because I'm a sarcastic <laughs> jerk. Like, I'm, I'm do, some upstart doctoral student. Like, well, how does that How does that rest, though? Like, I can see myself as a professor or whatever in the background being like, huh. Like, how does that... Like, how is that received? Or are people like, oh, interesting. Tell me more. Yes. How can I help you? Here's more books. Like, I don't... It's the latter, really? fortunately. Good. Yes. I mean, that's academia. Um, academia is the study of knowledge. You know, if we're in the business of, of apologetics, that would be something else. Um, <laughs> but in academia, you know, I applied to PhD programs and I got, luckily, one of the best text critics in the world to be my advisor, Jennifer Knust. And she also studies the manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Mm. She studies the story of the woman caught in adultery. And so she knows that story extremely well. She knows the manuscript extremely well. She has friends in Germany. She's friends with the guys who make the critical edition that all Bibles are translated from, the Novum Testamentum Graeke. Hmm. 
And she's friends with the British people who are now working on the Editio Critico Maior of the Gospel of John, which is they're taking like every single manuscript, like hundreds of manuscripts and showing every single reading. It's going to be a massive volume. Anyway, she believed in me. She took me on as her doctoral student. And then, and because I got published in the Harvard Theological Review, I should mention that. It's not just that I found this cool thing. It's that I wrote it up. I submitted it to a top tier journal, which is maybe a little presumptuous <laughs> as a master's student for me to do that. But I'm like, it's only presumptuous if they don't publish it. It's only presumptuous <laughs> if they don't read it and go, mm, there's something here. So I don't know. Well, if you have to write it in the right way. Yeah. It's not just that I have a picture of Papyrus 66. I had to make a good argument. But I, I, I found out later that my peer reviewer was Eldon Epp, who was one of the world's most eminent text critics, which was, I was like shocked. I like, like my jaw hit the floor when I found that out, but <laughs> he gave it a very positive review and it was published in 2017. Yeah. And then once it was published, I could mail it to these guys in Germany. They read it and they said, I was very impressed. And then I was able to meet with them in Germany. Nice. So I, I'm not going to say that I've persuaded everybody because I think what would be persuasive is if we found a copy with Martha completely gone, sort of like Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the story of the woman caught in adultery is gone. The ending of the Gospel of Mark is gone. Mm. That's very persuasive. We don't have any copies where Martha's completely gone. We can just create like an eclectic copy by piecing it together. Yeah, That's not quite the same thing as a copy where it's completely gone. I think if a copy like that surfaced, then it, people would be... I mean, I, but I've also found a lot of ancient artwork where there's only one sister. Actually, my friend Allie Gateos has, has found a lot of these pieces of artwork, and I found some others as well, depicting the Lazarus story, and there's just one sister. Hmm. Ancient, like, 4th century sarcophagi. Yeah. Um, so I would just say it's, it's creating a conversation that's being taken seriously. Give me a minute. We'll be right back. Make your peace with white remains. time period for someone to find one from like year a to year b where you're like yeah if we would find a complete copy of john from this time period most likely we would find martha not there like what would Mm. be those years it would have to be in the second century Mm. because origin of alexandria who writes in the third century early third century in his commentary on john's gospel he talks a fair bit about martha in fact he says martha is condemned he seems to not have liked Martha, which I thought, is, thought was kind of interesting. Maybe Origen knew of different copies that said different things. But I think, and, but Tertullian, Tertullian seems not to know Martha in John's gospel at all. And he was writing in 210 AD. So I think you'd have to find a second century copy. And we don't really have any century, seconds other than that one fragment, Papyrus 52, that's like this big, that has four verses of John 18. We don't have any second century papyri or copies of the of the Gospels. But you know what? It doesn't have to necessarily be a second century copy. It could be a 10th century copy of a second century copy. Maybe somebody had a second century copy sitting in their church and like, this is so old. We need to redo this. Or maybe an 8th century. You know what I mean? Like it's, you just, I, I think that it's possible. I don't know. I, I have a, a feeling that somewhere on this earth, there is a copy without Martha. 
and we haven't found it yet. But perhaps people need to be ready for it. I mean, it we find new we things. Find we find new things all the time. So, we um, do. yeah. One of my favorite websites that I'm often blocked from reading everything is Harit's. They, they publish things all the time. And I, I hit the paywall. I've hit too many articles for the for the month, and it bothers me. I don't um, know Harit's. What is that? Uh, it's um. So you, I talked to you a bit about James McGrath in the past. So he often shares yeah. articles from there, and I'm like, oh, that's that's oh four paragraphs in, and now <laughs> come on. James McGrath is the best. I saw you interviewed him as well. He's been on twice. Um, James is fun. I'd like to have him on. I want to talk to him about the Mande- Mandaeans, Mandaeans, Mandaeans. He says you're supposed to say Mandaeans. I don't know. I was taught Mandaeans until he said that, and now I just don't say it. <laughs> Before he said it, I didn't know that that was a thing. Uh, and then I've since dove into it, and I'm like, this is fascinating, really fascinating. So I have a couple more questions specifically surrounding this. So I am aware, or at least I've been told, that... Some of the like, like the Coptic churches, the Egyptian, Ethiopian, Coptic churches, like they have got like their own subset of texts that they'll often study from. Are their versions of these gospels different than the ones that we're going from? Because I know some of their versions from what I've understood from the internet, so we'll say Wikipedia tarnished me. Like, is it, is it different in the different sects of, of the faith, like the Protestant Bible versus the Catholic Bible versus the apocryphal with it in the Bible? Like, is there any interweaving of Mary and Martha interchanging or playing together throughout all the extra texts that are not in my 66 God-ordained books of the Bible. Insert sarcastic Mm -hmm. asterisk right there. (laughs) The Coptic Orthodox Church split from the Catholic and the current Orthodox Church in the 5th century over the nature of Christ. And so they do have like a different doctrine. They have a different doctrine of, um, I think they're Miaphysite, which means they believe Christ only had one nature instead of both a human and divine nature. So they're different in what they believe, but there are no Coptic copies without Martha. There are some ancient Coptic manuscripts. The thing is that the oldest manuscripts are from before that split. Okay. So you might be thinking about a doctrinal split that happened in the 5th century. Okay. Also, they have a different canon. They have extra books. Yeah. Like they have First Clement. That's one of their books of their Bible, which is kind of awesome. Like, their Bible is different. And I actually yeah. have a Coptic Christian friend here in North Carolina who moved here when he from Egypt when he was 10, and all the evangelicals were trying to convert him. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like his church is a thousand years older than the Protestant <laughs> church. And they don't uh, and they're they're like, what's wrong? Your Bible has an extra book. And it's like, okay, there's more than one kind of Christianity, my friends. But the thing is that I'm not I have not proven that Martha was added to the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. but it is a reasonable argument when looking at the data. And if people want to read my Harvard Theological Review article, maybe I'll send you a link that you can put in the show notes. So you I can see it. with your own I, eyes. I have it. I bought it because I wanted um I oh. wanted I wanted all it's like twenty bucks, twenty five bucks. It's not expensive. Like you can you can just buy it. It's not it's not real expensive. It's worth reading. So um, it's, Cambridge.org slash Elizabeth Schrader. You can see the scripture being changed yeah. by the scribes. And I'm just providing a reasonable motive. Mm-hmm. For why they would do this, we know that Mary Magdalene was a controversial character. We know that from books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Philip that didn't make it into the Bible. I'm not saying that those are scripture. I'm not saying that they should be scripture, but they're de- they're telling us something about the debates that were happening in the second century, where apparently Mary Magdalene was controversial, especially Peter seemed to have a problem with her. Hmm. That's what those texts say. And so we have like a historical motive for why Mary Magdalene might be suppressed. We know that people thought that Lazarus's sister Mary might have been Mary Magdalene. We know that we have people commenting on that in the third century, Hippolytus and the Manichaeans and then St. Ambrose. We have people who said that they thought that Lazarus's sister Mary was Mary Magdalene. And we have this church father saying that Mary had the confession, which is so similar to Peter's confession in Matthew yeah. that makes him the rock that the church is built on. So I, I'm not saying it's a proof, but it's, it's a reasonable argument. And also, one of the things I'm proudest of in that article on page 381, I do reconstruct the text without Martha using real readings from some of the most important manuscripts in the world. Yeah. And you can get a chunk of scripture with just Lazarus and Mary, John 11, 1 through 5. And to me, uh, I feel as though, what was the first question you asked me today? Who is Elizabeth Schrader? What is she here to do? And why? Yeah, something like, who um, is and what why? is or something? I, I, I can't remember. Yeah. If I die... And I recovered five verses of scripture to what the evangelist wrote. 
then that's that's something that's something I'll be okay like having died and yeah. done that with my life if yeah. I really did recover five verses of scripture. Yeah. I should also express that this is a faith-based work for me. I was living at the seminary in Manhattan, the General Theological Seminary. I was going to chapel every day, praying every day. It was a it was it 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 comes from a place of what I like about your podcast is it seems to be about people who love Jesus mm. and who love God and who are trying to discern what God is asking from them. And I really feel that this is my vocation and this is what I'm here to do. And the other thing is, if I'm wrong, I'm just some girl who had an idea, who got on some podcasts and got a bunch of YouTube views, and she's some girl with an idea. But if it's true that the scripture was changed, then nothing can stop it from yeah. coming to light. Yeah. You know, maybe it takes some time for it to come out. But if it's if it's true, then there's nothing that can stop it. So I'm fine with it being one way or the other. Either I'm some girl with a crazy idea who might have a doctoral dissertation who's on some library shelf somewhere, or I helped recover something that was lost for 1800 years. One or the other. We'll find out. Yeah. When do we find out? So how long how long does that take? A lifetime? Ask the Lord. <laughs> the Lord knows. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I would like to think that by talking with you and others, raising awareness of it, I think mm -hmm. makes a big difference. Um, helping people to to know about it. And um, I mean, I certainly don't want. <laughs> Does it require help? Like it's more than you can do alone? Like is, would it require other people to also begin to study it as well? I would love it. If other people, for instance, I have now looked at about 250 manuscripts of John 11. There's about 5,000. Mm. I would love for there to be a project where we started just looking at every single copy in the world of John 11 and seeing what it says. It's possible. I haven't found any copies of the gospel where Mary gives the confession, but maybe there's some copies where, like right now it's just a church father who said she did, mm. a really important church father. But maybe there's some copies where Mary gives the confession. Maybe somewhere... In some Greek monastery, there's a John 11 where Martha's totally gone because it's a 10th century copy of a 2nd century manuscript, you know? I would like there to be some movement in scholarship, and that would take funding. I mean, if somebody's like, I want to fund this project, great. I know a lot of scholars, great text critics who could use the funding. And we could, like, for a year or six months or something, look at every single manuscript of John 11 and find out what they all say. Or, you know... I don't know. Maybe somebody, some somebody has a copy and they're hiding it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, it's okay. Bring it forward. <laughs> this is this is the techno technophile in me, or I don't know if that's the right word. The person that likes. It. Is there not a way to just digitally scan or arbitrarily scan and have AI analyze specific portions of all of these mm. of all of these copies and be like, here are the seventeen or one hundred and seventy or whatever that possibly fit the parameters so that you can narrow down what you're looking for? Is that not a thing that exists? They have been digitizing images of all the manuscripts of the New Testament, which is very exciting. It's called the New Testament Virtual Manuscript Room. It's mm. awesome. Mm. Um, but uh, the problem is the paleography. Paleography changes over I don't, I don't know years. what that word means, so like, paleography. Handwriting. Okay. Handwriting style is totally different mm. over the course of, you know, Papyrus 66 is written in like big capital letters. And then um, that kind of switches to the block majuscule that Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are written in. Then it turns into the minuscule, which is really delicate, sort of lowercase. So it's just not consistent. Um, it's constantly changing. Uh, Maybe you could for the minuscule, but I mean, you just, you need somebody who can read the paleography. Yeah. And also sometimes some of the things are so subtle, like an accent mark can change the meaning. And also the difference between the word Maria and the word Martha is just one letter an iota and a theta, it's just one letter. I mean, I don't think computers, computers could digitize, but you need human eyes, trained mm. human eyes to look at the paleography to know what's going on. Huh. Huh. You know, have you seen a movie called, oh man, it's called like Maria, it might actually be called Maria or Gloria or Cl Clara. Clara is what it's called. It's on Amazon Prime. So hearing you describe looking through all of that, there is a part where they're looking for um, something in outer space and they're looking at it by finding the pieces that are missing. So they're looking for like gravity changing light, like bending around planets and stars where they can kind of, 
And so they're just sitting there combing reams and reams and reams. And finally, they both say, like, I found it. Here it is. I found it. Hearing you describe looking through all those manuscripts, for some reason, I, I keep visualizing that in my head. Um, really, it's a, it really is a that good That sounds movie. great. I'm getting excited talking about this. I mean, because I don't know. It's just a feeling that I have. I feel that it's out there. I feel that the copy is out there, mm. that there is a copy somewhere with Martha gone. And I want to find it. And maybe I'll find it in my lifetime. First, I had to get my doctorate. My, my advisor is like, Libby, you can't just do one thing. You know, you're not here to be a scholar of John 11. I'm here to be a professor of early Christianity. I've also got to teach on what happened at Ephesus and Constantine and all the, you know, every, all the, the Arians and the, you know, the Diocletian persecution. And I, I have to know everything. So I can't, I, you know, it's easy to get obsessed with, with something. Hey, everybody, there, there are worse hobbies than, than studying <laughs> the Bible. Um, there are worse hobbies than that. So um, final question, what is the divine? Like, what is God? How do you wrap words around wow. that? Oh my gosh, come on. Like, that's such a hardcore right? question. Right? I like to start with existential. Who are you and what are you and why? Mm-hmm. And we'll end with existential. Mm, I think the divine is a mirror. I think that our life is reflected. Wait, this is so deep. I'm, I'm supposed to just be a historian on here. I think that the the experiences that we have and the people that we encounter are a mirror. And that's what the divine is. It's showing us who we are and what we need to learn. So my seeing you across the screen, um, I should also share that for a long time, I would do my prayers in the morning, I would say, and Whoever is ready to hear this information, please bring it to them. I used to say that prayer every day for like over a year. And today I was I was going on my walk and I was just like, hey, thanks, God. Look at that. And there's a little time delay there. But I felt, you know, it's like, okay, my prayer that I was praying every day is being answered. You know, I'm I'm able to talk to people. And the thing is, is that not everybody is ready mm. To hear this. So this podcast, I suppose, is a mirror for those of you who might be ready mm. to hear it. I mm. think God is always nudging us one way or the other to see what we're ready for. Where do people go, Elizabeth? Uh, normally there's a book to buy or a website to go to, but that's a little different today. So where do people go to do whatever they should be doing as it relates to the topic? Um, they can go to my website, elizabethschrader.com. Mm. Um, and in the press, there is, um, if you go to the press page, you can see a bunch of links to like the Religion News Service or Daily Beast article written about it. And the Religion News Service article has a link where you can read the Harvard Theological Review paper. You just click right through. If you want a summary of it, you can go to the Religion for Breakfast interview um, with Andrew Henry. You can see me and you can see pictures of the papyrus there. And I also have a mailing list. The thing is, this isn't the only textual problem right. around the women. There's right. others, and I'm working on them. And um, I present, I give presentations at conferences. I'm actually teaching a class at Duke. Um, it's called, it's it's like a, it's for lifelong learning. It's like a not cre- not for credit thing, but people can sign up. Like I, I have a newsletter and people can find out if I'm teaching, if they want to sign up and learn. So just go to my website, elizabethschrader.com. Just to give people... A taste of that. So in like 40 seconds, you said there are other issues with women in the Bible or whatever. Like, what are those? Like high level, just bam, 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 bam. What are those? Mm. Okay. Well, obviously the story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm -hmm. That story is sometimes there in the Gospel of John. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's at the end of the Gospel of John. Sometimes it's in the Gospel of Luke. It depends on the manuscript. Mm. That story floats around. Okay. Um, Some manuscripts... Um, When the Magnificat happens in Luke chapter one, Mm -hmm. sometimes Elizabeth sings the Magnificat instead Mm. of Mary. Really? Some really old manuscripts, Elizabeth is the one singing the Magnificat. You're like, what? Well, but family, right? It's still family. But she's saying the Lord has magnified me and has, you know, has raised me up from my, um, (laughs) I don't have it memorized. But, but, uh, you know, Elizabeth was the one who was barren. So in some ways, okay. So is Elizabeth talking about her pregnancy with John the Baptist? It depends on the manuscript. <laughs> um, there's also some manuscripts of John 20 where there's an extra part when Mary Magdalene encounters Jesus. Some of them, including in Codex Sinaiticus, Mary runs to touch Jesus. Hmm. And some copies, extra half verse, depending upon the copy. Huh. Um, and there's others, but uh, these are the things. This is why textual criticism is so much fun. 
I hope to bring these text critical issues to people's attention and, and to do it in such a way that people are not scared, but to say the text is alive and we, we can learn from it. Yeah. And um, the Bible is, it's a living document. And over time, people have, people have added and taken away and changed. And we can, being good text critics, approach, do our best to see what the author wrote. But it's also important to see how the text was received over time. Mm. That in itself is also an important enterprise. Mm. Textual criticism, I think, is just so fun. I would agree. But I say that, and right behind you is Robert Alter's massive trove of the Hebrew Bible. No, right behind Where me, right behind you. <laughs> like it's, I would turn this, I, I can turn the screen. So it's right, I can't, it's plugged in. Um, it's whole, I believe you. It's, whole, uh, it's My wife gets mad. She's like, you needed another copy of the Bible? I. This isn't the whole Bible. This is a portion of the Bible, and this is important. <laughs> You've got Smice Greek grammar behind you. I don't, I can't, I can't read that. <laughs> so I, I can't read any of that. Oh, good. This has been a blast. I've enjoyed it, Elizabeth. I, I really, yeah. yeah. And I appreciate the work you're doing. I think it's, I'm hopeful that it changes things. Mostly because I have two daughters. Um, right. That, yeah. So. If, if women were meant to have the same kind of leadership role as men, that's a Christianity that I want to be a part of. Tempest crashing, I feel my failures burn. Talking with Elizabeth makes me wonder what else possibly are we just overlooking because scholars told us that it was there. I wonder what things we just if if to use a metaphor, I wonder how many parts of scripture we just walk right past outside because we don't recognize them, because we weren't told to look for them. It's those little things that I continue to try to rip apart personally, and it makes God so much bigger. And if bigger is a word that somehow makes you feel scared, because I've been told in the past, and I get it, that a big God, at least in those terms, could be scary. Grander is a better word. Amazing. I don't have words, and I think... That's why we just use the word God. But dig into Elizabeth's work. It is worth it. I think that you'll get a lot from it, as I have and continue to do so. Consider supporting the show. I pray that you are blessed, and I will talk to you next week. Curses while his Christian fans disappear. Spent your whole life hoping folks would notice what you did. Now you know your grandparents will never get to hold on to your kids. But there's no victims here in the valley of the shadow of death. Just the devils who laugh as the shadow gets cast on itself. And there's comeuppance for all of us who mask what we felt. Two bits of other people's hearts till only fragments were left. And we reframe the words our loved ones actually said to justify our selfish reactions and our lack of regret. But when the bell tolls and we out here gasping for breath, praying for absolution as chapters from the past to get read. When we exchange our bed for a casket instead, maybe then we can finally stop asking what's next. Yeah.